Recently, I was in discussion with a friend of mine who serves vocationally as a professor of church history. This is his job to teach church history, and he's written and published extensively in church history, primarily on the topic of early American Christianity and evangelicalism. And so this is sort of his area of interest. And so he's written books and published all these kinds of things in the area of early American evangelicalism and Christianity, often in reference to this great series of events throughout the 18th, 19th century referred to as spiritual awakenings in America. And so a lot of these awakenings, Great uh, great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, probably heard of these, uh, emanated from uh, locales around even where we're gathered today. And so the Northeast sort of led out and that, and then it emanated uh, frontier, western regions, into the south, and so he spent much of his career sort of tracking down the historical narrative of God on the move in all of these different locales, and he was relating to me some of the details of the publishing process, and writing in these different areas, he's had the opportunity to write for publishing houses and editors uh, in two different kinds of settings. The first, more popular, uh, denominationally attached um, publishing houses that have, we might say, more overt or more obvious attachments to religion, to Christianity, have more uh, Christian flavor, we might say. And he's also had the opportunity to publish for outlets like our university academic presses that have, we might say, fewer religious attachments. And so he's seen both ends of this publishing world in recounting church history. And when recounting church history, often he gets to points in writing historical accounts where he's describing an event in such a way, he arrives at this point that he needs to describe something that can't be seen. Within the scope of spiritual awakenings in our country, around the world, there is this portion, this element of these types of stories that we can't explain by human means. We need to say something to the effect of God was at work, that God's spirit was reviving the church across the land, that God was changing people's lives. And as he was to write statements in this regard, God did this in these publishing houses with more explicit religious commitments, those statements would pretty much be okay, fly without any flag, without any note. And yet, when he would write for some of the academic university presses, often an editor would flag these sorts of comments with a note in the margin that said something along the lines of, work with me here, right? And by work with me here, what they meant was, is there any other explanation for what happened? As we're watching spiritual awakening and this sort of religious fervor sprout up in all of these different locales, is there another explanation beyond simply God's spirit was at work? Were there societal factors, cultural conditions? Was there sort of some sort of rampant disease that was pushing people toward church settings? What was actually going on in the culture that caused these things to happen? Is there another explanation? And certainly all of these things could have occurred and did occur and were true, but it didn't preclude the fact that God was at work. And so he would often hit these points where he would just confess to the editor, I'll try, but literally there is no other way to explain what happened. As it is sometimes in the case of publishing, it is often in life that you and I will be tempted to sort of look over, look past, explain away the things of God. My hope today in preaching our passage and spending time together today is that we would find ourselves more confident, blessed by the grace of God, more confident to speak in these terms. Yes, God did that. 
I have no other way to explain it. I've thought through every possible, reasonable, rational explanation, and here's where I've landed. The Lord did something that I cannot explain any way else, that we would grow in our confidence in speaking this way, because it's true. The Lord works in ways that we often see and often in ways that we cannot see. And we ought to be confident in explaining that way and not feel as pressured as we do to explain it in some other terms. Our passage today will help us kind of lean back against that or push back against that tendency in manifold ways. It's a familiar passage to many of us, and so we want to take a look at it from a few different angles. But this morning, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't own a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you that you're uh, welcome to use this morning. And we also have free Bibles on a table in the back um, that you're uh, welcome to take home with you. If you need to take home a Bible, we would love as a church to give you one of those. As you're turning in the book of 1 Samuel, if you're new to reading the Bible, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. I want to say a few things before we jump into the passage just as a bit of a primer. So over the past five weeks, we've moved out of 1 Samuel. We've been preaching a series we called Embodied. So we've talked pretty pointedly over five weeks about the human body, about how we relate to one another in light of God-given human dignity and these sorts of things. So I would encourage you to jump back in and listen to that January series, all five parts of it, if you're crazy like me, and you can listen to all of that and glean a lot from that. Before Christmas last year, we leapt off in a series we've been covering the book of 1 Samuel, preaching chapter by chapter through the book of 1 Samuel. And so before Christmas is a long time ago, so I wanted to do a few things here to kind of catch us up to speed, and then we'll work through the passage together. But within the book of 1 Samuel, just as an overall kind of summary, catch us up to speed overview, the nation of Israel, God's people, has demanded from God a human leader. They've kind of preoccupied themselves with looking at nations around them, seeing how other nations have been led, realizing that God is their leader, not a human leader, and they've asked God, we want to be led like these other nations. In his kindness, God granted that request, and we find over and over again that he granted that request as a means of showing Israel their own insufficiencies, showing how hopeless they are without God. So he grants them this human leader in the form of Saul, a guy named Saul that we've been talking about for weeks upon weeks. And we've seen more recently in chapters 15 and 16 that there is now a transition because Saul is not fit for the task of leading God's people. Over and over again, he's been proven to be incompetent or disobedient or whatever kind of terms we want to apply to some of Saul's actions. Saul has been found to be unfit for this role as king of the people of Israel. So in the past two chapters, 15 and 16, we've seen the anointing of this new coming king-like figure, David, this shepherd boy who has now been anointed and who is now taking Saul's place as leader of Israel. That transition hasn't fully happened, but we see here as we get into 15, 16, and now today, chapter 17, more evidences that Saul will not maintain his place as Israel's leader. When I said 1 Samuel 17, some of your minds, if you're familiar with the stories contained herein, you might have jumped to what is perhaps the most familiar story in all of the Bible. 1 Samuel 17 contains the events between David and Goliath, arguably the most well-known fight, the most well-known battle in all of human history, such that Malcolm Gladwell has picked up his own perception of this battle, and others have picked up their own perception and take and interpretation of these events that we'll read about today. And then one final note, just because I think I, I should say it, is that in preaching 1 Samuel 17 today, I, not by any choice of my own, am joining in solidarity probably with thousands of preachers 
leaders across our great country today. And that reason, the reason for that is because there is a particular football game that is occurring tonight. And many preachers have found it, I don't know, found it worthy of taking this moment and saying we should talk definitely about David and Goliath, but to manage expectations in this space, maybe to disappoint you. Neither the 49ers nor Chiefs will feature prominently in today's sermon. We'll talk about David and Goliath otherwise. And so, uh, so that's just kind of my caveat. Solidarity with the rest of the church, maybe a little different take on what we're discussing today. So here's how we want to do this. I don't want to read through the whole chapter initially. We've been doing that with some other chapters, and that's a fine way to approach it. But I want to read in sections and kind of go through three different sections. And we'll see in our passage today, if you're a note taker in 1 Samuel 17, we'll see in our passage today this emphasis that you and I are to remember our great God who is faithful to deliver. We are to remember our great God, who is faithful to deliver. We'll look at the passage today for Samuel 17 in three different parts. First, we'll see a giant's challenge. A giant's challenge, verses 1 through 11. In verses 12 through 37, we'll see an unlikely champion. An unlikely champion. And then in the final section, verses 38 through 58, we'll see the Lord's sure deliverance. A giant's challenge, an unlikely champion, and the Lord's sure deliverance. Follow along as I read 17 verses 1 through 11 aloud. So now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah. In Ephes, Damim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the, on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his hand, head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants, but if I prevail... Against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. In our first section here, A Giant's Challenge, verses 1 through 11, we see over and over again that the section here is, is dedicated to demonstrating the enormity of the challenge that's before Israel. The enormity, the size of the challenge that's before Israel. We see this in mention of Goliath's physical stature. We see this mentioned in the quality of the armor that Goliath is wearing. We see this in the mention of the Philistine army, and we have kind of conceptions of what that is, the size and the, the aggressiveness of the Philistine army. And we see this also in Israel's response as they begin to shrink back and cower in fear of what's before them. We're reminded in verses 1 through 11 of the enormity of the challenge that's before Israel. 
In regards to his physical stature, here the champion from among the Philistines, Goliath, is, is um, pictured here as being a rather large human being. And over uh, different, uh, I guess, methods of determining translations between measurements and now having applied our weird American system to this, we've ascertained, and most people agree, that Goliath stood somewhere around nine feet tall. So this nine foot tall human being is now standing before the Israelites and he's covered from head to toe in this more than sturdy bronze armor, right? He's got this substantial suit of armor that's covering this nine foot human being. The outer coat alone, so you read about this coat of armor that he's wearing on the outskirts to kind of protect him from the most surface level attacks. This coat of armor just on the outside of what Goliath is wearing is estimated to weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of over 100 pounds. So you have a nine foot tall man in bronze armor and he's wearing at least a couple of hundred pounds of armor and he's standing now before the Israelites, a formidable physical opponent to be sure. That's what this story is kind of about. He is confident too. So it's not just that Goliath is a physical presence, a formidable physical presence, but he's also confident. We would even say prideful that he can get the job done as he stands out before the Philistines in front of the Israelites and issues his challenge. He is confident, even prideful in fulfilling that role. We see in verses eight through 10 that Goliath taunts the Israelites. Why have you even come out here? Choose a man, any man from among you. I'll take him down. I defy in this moment through my words, my actions, I defy the ranks of Israel. And we see in this passage a couple of kinds of short-sightedness, don't we? As Goliath is proclaiming his challenge, as we watch the Israelites shrink back in fear, we're reminded, and per our knowledge of the rest of the story and as we get into the passage, we're reminded that there is more going on here than meets the eye. If we were challenged or, or I guess, asked to explain this in human terms, this is where we'd end up. A giant human being, a cowering army on the other side, this is the battle. And yet, what we know is that there is a description of these events that defies human explanation, that a story is being told, that there's a greater, grander narrative that's unfolding through this challenge that Goliath is now issuing. And so the short-sightedness we see on Goliath's end manifests itself in the kind of pride that is expressed when Goliath says, I defy the armies of Israel, not knowing that he is actually defying the God of the armies of Israel. He's short-sighted and not in tune with this larger, this bigger, grander narrative story that's going on. Short-sighted. I defy the armies, not knowing or maybe unwitting, ignorant of the fact that he's defying God himself. We see short-sightedness too on behalf of Israel. As they're watching this formidable challenge in front of them and estimating what it's going to take to actually overcome and win this battle, they're short-sighted in the sense that they forget who they belong to. As they're watching the army in front of them, they're forgetting whose they are, their very own identity. So this first section with the giant's challenge is marked by these kinds of short-sightedness. The Israelites grow dismayed. It says that they're greatly afraid. And notable in this part of the passage, in this particular verse, is who is among the Israelites. Of all the people in Israel who could step forth and accept this challenge from the giant, wouldn't their leader be at the top of the list? All throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we're reminded of Saul's own physical stature. He's described in one point of the book as tallest among those and Israelites. The tallest man among their own army. What better man to face down this Philistine giant? 
And yet, what the passage tells us is that Saul and the Israelites grow dismayed. They shrink back. They become fearful that Saul is among those who are fearful. The passage then grows in us this sort of expectation, this wondering, if not the leader, then who? Who will come to save the day? Who will step forth to answer the giant's challenge? Verses 12 through 37, we see an unlikely champion, one off the radar, one who, per the rest of the book, we might assume would arrive on the scene sooner rather than later, but within the context of the story, one who seems unlikely to fit the bill. Read along as I read 12 through 37 aloud. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to, to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. 
And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. We see here in the description of David a stark contrast between this figure, Goliath, who has come from the Philistines. It couldn't be more obvious, the picture that's being painted here. As we look at the narrative, the descriptors that are given to David, the descriptors that are applied to David's person throughout the book of 1 Samuel, throughout this particular part of the narrative, stand in stark contrast to this towering, massive figure that we see in Saul. David here is described as, as we read through the tasks that are given him by his father, essentially as an errand boy, a shepherd boy who's come from the wilderness side to now go and retrieve and give supplies to his brothers who are on the front lines of battle, doing the actual battle, a task boy, an errand boy, the youngest of the bunch, the most unlikely to step forward in this particular battle. And on the other side, you again have this towering figure, Goliath, coming. It says day and night. For 40 days, Goliath is issuing the challenge. 40 days on end, both day and night, send someone, send someone. I'm ready, send someone. So get the picture here. A shepherd boy coming to bring bread and supplies to his brothers who are doing the fighting. And this giant standing out before the opposing, the enemy arguing army issuing challenge after challenge, day after day after day. Make no mistake about this, and this is what we were alluding to earlier, that it is not mere happenstance that David is where he is when Goliath issues his challenge. It is not mere happenstance that David is bringing now supplies to his brothers and overhears these words from this giant. We can explain a lot of things in human terms, but as we watch this story unfold, we understand and know there is a reason that David is now within earshot of this giant giving this type of challenge because he's going to respond to it. There's a greater narrative, a greater story that's unfolding. We want to be attentive here too to David's response as he's Parsing out all the details of this challenge that's been presented and considering his own involvement therein, asking good questions, asking into the reward, kind of seeing the terms of the battle, the terms of the agreement, David's heart and mind are geared toward something else altogether. You see, David does take on indignation. He does take on offense by by Goliath issuing the challenge in the way that he is. But David's offense and his indignation on behalf of Israel here is not merely for Israel's sake. David isn't taking up the cause of his country. He's not taking up the cause of his neighbors merely. David's not into self-preservation or thinking about himself being in danger. And yet, what the text says over and over and over again is that David's motivations, his impetus for joining this battle have deeper roots. Saul, you've not only offended the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the armies of Israel, you've offended the God who they belong to. I'm coming in the name of the Lord, he says. I'm coming to fight on behalf of this God. David's indignation is not rooted in any sort of self-preservation or personal offense or on behalf of his country. He's coming in the name of the Lord. And this is why David inserts himself into the battle, because he's been called to do it. 
We see in chapters 15 and 16, the anointing of David, this evidence that David is now going to supplant Saul as leader of the country. And here is an evidentiary piece of that now taking place. David's been called by God to fill this particular role. What's more, David doesn't seem here to be overly persuaded by the offer of the massive reward. Does ask about it, does inquire about it, but it doesn't, the text doesn't indicate to us that after hearing that, he's now somewhat more motivated to go and do what he's going to do. But rather, in his responses over and over again, verse 26, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this man who's bringing reproach on the name of the Lord? To David, the name of the Lord is being reproached. And this is the root of his offense. This is his motivation and his impetus for joining the battle. David is challenged here on multiple fronts too, we see. The physical threat of Goliath looms, and we see tension here in conversation with both his brother, Eliab, and with Saul. In the conversation with Eliab, we see in verse 28 and following, we sense some amount of jealousy on behalf of David's brother. Why are you here? He becomes suspicious of David's motivation, or at least expresses suspicion in David's motivation. And there's almost a sense here from his brother's perspective of jealousy, that David now is the one who's coming onto the scene. So another aspect of some of the challenge and some of the um, a battle that David is up against. And then we see in this conversation with Saul a different aspect of challenge. We see here doubt filled or doubt that fills, fills Saul's mind in regards to David's ability to take on the task that's been put in front of him. 31 through 37, it says, Saul basically gives this list of reasons why David is not the man fit for this particular battle, is not the man fit for this job. Among them, he says that David himself is a youth, inexperienced for what he's about to try to do. And not only that, but Goliath is well-equipped for what he's intending to do to the Israelites. He's been about a man of war, it says, since youth. He's been ready for this for years. And now David is coming in haphazardly. You won't be able to do this. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. And note here David's response to Saul. Sensing another form of opposition, insecurity, suspicion, lack of confidence about David's ability to go and do this. David responds in a peculiar way. And this is because he is intimately familiar with the call of God on his life for this work. A few months ago, we were able to sit down here at Hope with a member here at Hope, a dear sister of ours, uh, who is now currently and in recent months gone to uh, begin serving as a missionary, doing outreach work in East Asia. And as we were sort of processing this opportunity with her and thinking about uh, how we could support and pray for her as she went, uh, we engaged in this sort of lengthy discussion about the particulars of what she'd be doing overseas. You know, it's a more difficult place to minister in. What challenges might we face? What sort of programmatic elements might we do? What, what plans do you have? And as we circled around some of the ideas, uh, you know, many of them weren't fully formed yet. In a lot of ways, she needed to be on the ground to actually figure out what the Lord was going to use her to accomplish. And so as we were sort of batting that back and forth and going throughout, she said something to us. Curtis and I were both meeting her with her and we sat down and she said something to us that has stuck with me in the week since our chat. And I'm sure we'll be with me for a long time, because at one point in the conversation, as we were talking about all the unknowns and all the uncertainties, she looked at us and kind of sighed a little bit, and she said this. She said, you know, there are a lot of impossibilities with this. And as she said that, I was like, huh. 
And as she said that, she began to relate the details that there are a lot of impossibilities with this. There's a lot of unanswered questions. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I have confidence that the Lord has called me to do this. I think some of the particulars will get, you know, fleshed out as I get on the ground and that will become evident, but I'm, I'm confident that God has called me to go here and to go do this. There are a lot of impossibilities with this, but God is able. God can do this. And I thought to myself in that moment, what a category for those who believe in God to have. Do you have a category? Do I have a category in my life of things that I would apply that label to? You know, there are a lot of impossibilities with this. This seems too far-fetched for someone like me with the abilities or inabilities that I have. This seems impossible because of what they've been through or what they're experiencing now. This seems impossible because of the things that I've been up against or the things that I've been challenged by or the limitations that I sense in my old life. There are a lot of impossibilities with this. Do you have a category like that? Do I have a category like that? Because you see, holding this category in proper tension allows us opportunity to express faith and trust in our God who is able. Without a category in like this, I'm content and I'm intent on doing things my own way. If I only live life in such a way that I can manage every detail and pull everything off, then what need is there for my great God who is faithful to deliver? And yet coming to God with this category of things that are far beyond myself reminds me of this truth, that God is glorified in our dependence on him. That God is glorified in our dependence on him. God is glorified when we have things in our life that we know we cannot do, but we believe he is able. This is increasing our faith as we practice this remembrance of God's ability and his faithfulness. And this is the premise of David's response, isn't it? You may not see in me one who's fit for the task. There are a lot of impossibilities with this. But I face lions and I face bears. I've plucked sheep from their mouth and I've laid them flat when they attacked because the Lord fought for me. Because the Lord was with me. The battle was the Lord's. I fought on behalf of him. There are a lot of impossibilities with what David is up against. And yet he doesn't fight the battle alone. The Lord is with him and this is the impetus. His motivation is the Lord's. And the battles that the Lord's fighting. And the battles that the Lord will win. As we seek to entertain the impossibilities in our life, and we'll circle back to this at the end of today as well, as we seek to entertain the things that are far beyond us and impossible for us, I think it's important too that in a community of faith like this, uh, that we find it in and of ourselves to find opportunity with one another to, to maybe lend faith to those around us. Maybe someone in your community, maybe someone who's close to you is experiencing something that is far beyond your understanding right now, that is far beyond what you have actual words and encouragement for. But in that moment, how glorious of an opportunity do we have to turn and say, hey man, hey, hey sister, I don't know what to say here, but I know our God is faithful. I've seen him be faithful over and over and over again. This is the type of remembrance that we're after and the emphasis of our passage, that we remember our great God and his faithfulness to deliver. Not only do we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness time and time again throughout our lives, we help remind each other of God's faithfulness too. Every single time the Lord has been faithful to you is evidence that he will yet be faithful again. 
Sustained reflection on God's faithfulness to you in the past girds us up, plants our feet such that we're ready for him to be faithful again, expecting that he'll be faithful again. David's baking his life on God's faithfulness. Standing down this giant, standing in front of this tall task in front of him, and the only thing that he can point to is, God's done it in the past. Here we go. God's done it in the past. He's confident the Lord's purposes will be fulfilled, and that confidence springs from his long list of remembrances of, the God's, of God's faithfulness to him before. The famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon writes of the value of this type of remembrance for us, noting that we ought not be unmindful of the way which the Lord, of the way by which the Lord our God has led us. For with, if we are unmindful, we shall lose much. He says, "Some saints have very short memories." It has been well said that we write our benefits in dust, fleeting, and our injuries in marble. He says it's equally true that we generally inscribe our afflictions upon brass and the record of God's deliverances are written in water. What's Spurgeon after here? He's saying that we attend to ascribe to our trials and our suffering and our hardships this kind of sense of permanency. And it will always be this way. And I'll always be downcast. I'll always be overcome. And then we tend to ascribe to the things of God, remembrance of God's faithfulness, more fluidity, fleeting thoughts in our own mind. And yet we're called to remember. He says, we ought not be this way, Spurgeon continues. He says, if our memories were more tenacious of the merciful visitations of our God, our faith would be strengthened in times of trial. How proactively are we being and recalling to mind the ways that the Lord has been faithful to us? For David, reflections on the Lord's faithfulness in this way allowed his feet and faith to be firm in the face of great difficulty and pervasive fear that existed all around him. And yet David's remembrance and resulting confidence from it in this way prepared him to bear witness to and take part in the Lord's deliverance. And that's what we see in our final section here in 38 through 58. The Lord's sure Deliverance. Follow along as I read 38 through 58. Then Saul clothed David with his, with his armor. So David's now going into battle against this giant. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took in his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There's no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but put his armor in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking, the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you? Young man, and David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As we watch the story unfold, familiar details to be sure, enacted, reenacted throughout thousands of children's ministries with sparing some details, right? Familiar details to us as we watch David take in his sock these stones and this sling in his hand and confront the giant in this way. And yet, if this is merely told as a story of David's courage, and David's ability, and David's decision to will himself up for the fight, then we miss the point. As David is considering pursuing, entering into battle against this giant, he is adamant about carrying out the plans, the ways of the Lord. It's the Lord's battle. That's why I'm here. Why do I have confidence in a sling and a stone over a sword and armor? Because it's the Lord's battle. He'll fight. He'll win. We see here even a glimpse of Saul. Remember, evidentiary pieces of Saul being supplanted as king of Israel, where Saul tries to fit David with his armor. Yeah, David's going to go get him. Let me see if my armor fits on him. Just this clear picture of what's going on in the transition. And yet, even in that, a picture here of David's dependence what the Lord is doing. The armor doesn't even fit. It's going to weigh him down. So he chooses, in effect, a lesser way to accomplish these great things. We're familiar with the details of this story, and we rehearse them over and over again. Culture has its own take and its own perspective on what David and Goliath has meant. You may actually hear that story if you watch the football game tonight, right? It it seeps into uh, our culture in ways we would not expect because it's been held up as this great triumph of the lesser man over the greater man, when really the story is about this great God triumphing carrying out his purposes, his ways, victorious as he's ever been. It's another dot on God's roadmap, right? Another chance, another opportunity for him to demonstrate his power and his strength. We see in this part of the passage too, more peeling back the curtain on David's motivations. Why is he in the battle? He says this, that all the world, hear this, that all the world may know that there is a God in Israel. That every time we tell this story of the little man defeating the big man, that the story is this. There is a God 
over all of Israel. That there is a God reigning over all of our lives. And this God doesn't reign or save merely by sword or spear, but the battle belongs to him. This God is the victorious one. Verse 48 and 49, as David actually encounters Goliath and defeats him in battle, we're reminded that time and time again throughout the Old Testament, even as we've gone throughout 1 Samuel, that lesser gods fall on their face before the one true God. As we speak in confession this morning about what idolatry is and, and the context of our own lives, we're reminded that all things we set up as ultimate that are not God fall on their face ultimately before him. We've seen lesser gods fall on their face before God. And David deals this decisive blow, severing the giant's head from his body. And we watch in the text, the tables turn. Almost word for word, everything that was said to, uh, that was going to happen to Israel is said to have happened to the Philistines. Almost word for word. And the tables are turned as Israel mounts this major comeback. Story is not purely one of human courage, it's not purely one of finding ourselves in David's shoes. It's not purely one of finding out all the ways that we can navigate challenges and difficulties in our lives. It's primarily one of God's great glory and his ability to rescue and his ability to save. Are there secondary applications that we can draw? Yes. Should we be courageous? Absolutely. Should we seek to model David's faithfulness in the many ways that we're able? Absolutely. Should we seek to model David's trust in the one who is able to overcome? You bet. This is a story about God and his goodness and his glory. And ultimately, as we watch this narrative unfolding in the background, this bigger story that we stay attuned to, as we begin to explain this story in terms of God did this, as we describe this story in that way, we're reminded that David's story with Goliath ultimately points to this more ultimate reality. As we see the passage close here, there's an interesting conversation between David and Abner, or Saul and Abner, as they seek to find out whose son David is, which is a curious question if you kept up with the narrative. David has served in the service of Saul for years. He's played the liar. He's played songs that calm the king. David's known by Saul. He's a known quantity. And yet Abner and Saul are having this conversation, whose son is this man? And note the question here isn't who is this man, because they have some idea of who he is. But whose son is he? Where is he from? On one hand, this is a practical answer to the question mentioned before in the reward. The man who kills Goliath is going to receive benefits for his family. Where should those benefits be spread out? David's family. We need to figure out who that is. On the other hand, David issues this rattling statement at the end of our passage. David's not just any man. He's the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite. The same Jesse that the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul, remind us from whom a root will spring. And we're reminded David is this son of Jesse and that within the lineage of David, there will be this messianic figure. One who comes to save yet in different ways. Jesus himself, born from the lineage of Jesse and David, now comes as a conquering king and this 1 Samuel 17 passage, with all of its fun details included, points us straight to Jesus. Reminds us that the salvation we see in here, David being delivered, liberated from the challenges in front of us, speaks of a greater deliverance, of greater liberation. That's worth our reflection on, that's worth our response to. David is a pointer to Jesus. 
He tells us all about him. And so it's worthy or worth our time to take time to reflect on Jesus's work done in your life and in the lives of those around us as we're reminded here of this great rescue from sin, this great deliverance that we now have to treasure and celebrate. How often do you reflect on Jesus's deliverance, salvation in your own life? I'm awed by it in mine. Not frequently. I'm not like sitting at dinner with Paige and I'm like, you know what? Salvation's awesome, right? It's not this like ongoing thing, right? But often, how often are we reflecting on Jesus's deliverance from sin in our own lives and what that has actually meant for us? I want to tell this whole story, but as I think back on my own salvation and even the moment in which I first understood the gospel, I'm amazed by what the Lord is capable and able of doing. I went to a small Baptist church and I was at an actual prayer meeting in someone's home at this small Baptist church. And it was me, I was 15 years old and I was sitting next to my very first pastor. He was in his mid thirties and he was sitting next to me and no one else in the room, probably 12, 15 people in the room, no one else in the room besides us was under the age of like 60 or 65. Senior adult prayer meeting and here's little Mike sitting in there like, what am I doing here, right? And we're sitting in this prayer meeting and they all pray and I don't know how to pray. And so I'm just sitting there kind of like bearing witness, listening to what's going on in this prayer meeting. And at the end of this meeting, my pastor, knowing exactly what he's doing, shares the clearest gospel presentation I'd ever heard in my life. Just word for word, reminding me of the gravity of my sin what that meant in the sight of God and about Jesus' death and his rescue of us and his resurrection just shares it so clearly. And I remember understanding it for the very first time in a room full of like old people. <laughs> and I, I can look back on that scene now and I'm, I'm encouraging you here, think about deliverance in your own life. I can look back on that scene now almost like a movie scene, like eject from this life and watch that scene. And I can see those events unfolding and I think to myself, you know, there are a billion impossibilities with that. The things I've gone through, the things I've done in life, the things I'm addicted to, the things that I'm wrapped up in, the fact that I'm sitting in a senior adult prayer meeting, there are a myriad of impossibilities. And yet, God shows himself faithful in the midst of all those impossibilities. And maybe this is your story here today, is that you sense the impossibilities. You've heard a bit about Christ, that you know a bit about Jesus, but you sense that you're too far gone, that you've either done too much or that you're unsavable, that you're beyond his loving grasp that there's no way that God could ever save someone like you. Let me remind you, brother, sister, that our God is a God of impossibilities. That our God is a God of impossibilities. And this gospel that we hold out week after week, this gospel is for you. That today could be the day that you put trust, faith in Jesus as your savior. And the story begins to change. The narrative begins to turn. For those in the room today who do profess belief in Jesus, I have three things that I just kind of want to leave you with um, as, as one of your pastors and as one who loves you that we might crowd our lives together around ongoingly so. But in terms of application, as we think about this great story in 1 Samuel 17, the first one is this, that you individually would remember the Lord's faithfulness and his deliverance in your life. That you would even go home today before kickoff and reflect on what the Lord has done for you, the misery he's plucked you out of, the sin he set you free from. What has the Lord done in your life? And I pray to, or the second point of application is this, that we would, as a community of faith, that we would pray for growth and confidence that the Lord is at work, even in ways that we can't see. 
that when we're tempted to doubt that the Lord is at work and we have questions to believe that, that we would pray asking God to help us with our unbelief, that we would know as a community of faith that God is doing things in people's lives and in our community that we can't yet see. And we can trust and know that he is. And then the last point of application, and I'll pray for us, going a little over time here. The last application is this, that not only would you and I remember what the Lord has done in our lives, but that coming into a context in a place like this, that you and I would find every opportunity we have to remind someone else how the Lord has been faithful. There's someone sitting to your left, right, behind, in front of you, someone you'll share coffee and a muffin with in like 10 minutes, someone in this room who's experiencing things that you have no clue about, I guarantee it. And you might be one of those. But if we walk into a place like this and in a context like this and then somehow over what seem like just maybe, maybe they are meaningful conversations, hopefully they are, but in this ordinary moment, if we find opportunity to say, hey, how can I remind you today of God's faithfulness to you, to us? How can I remind you today of God's faithfulness in your life such that you are built up and encouraged before you leave this place? We're not gonna find this in many contexts we find ourselves in Monday through Saturday. We'll find it in some, but what a great opportunity we have in gathering together to point one another to Jesus. Let me pray for us.